Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather together as a church this morning again, that we have this freedom, this privilege, being together and studying your word, and we thank you for your presence, presence of your spirit that leads us and directs us. I pray that you bless Brother John as he opens your word, as he preaches this morning from the message that you have given to him. May you just give him strength, give him a clear mind, and give him courage to share what you've laid upon his heart, and that it would speak to the needs in our lives, that we'd be able to accept the truth from your word, apply it to our lives, and live by it, and in this way that we could be a shining light for you as we live in this world. Just thank you again for each one in this church, and may your blessing be upon the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to everyone. It's good to be here again this morning. I would like to begin with a little background on today's title, if you've looked at your bulletin. Uh, many years ago, I think I can say many, it's been many, um, when I was still a teenager, our youth group would go to two, uh, I'm going to call them inner city missions. And the one was about 45 minutes away. And we went about, oh, once every month or two months, don't remember exactly, but fairly often. And there were about 30 or 40 uh, men showed up, a few ladies, and we would sing to them. Uh, one of the youth guys would have devotions, and then one of our pastors would have a short sermon. Um, short service, you know, 45 minutes long. Uh, second mission was a couple hours away, a much larger city. <coughs> Excuse me. And about, I would guess probably two or 300 men would show up there. We went there maybe once or twice a year, so less often. But I think both these places would provide um, a meal and a bed if the men attended the services. In fact, I think the, the larger mission even went so far as to lock the doors uh, after the service started every night. And if you, if you weren't there for the service, you, you would not get a meal and a bed that night. So they were pretty insistent that you would come to the service. And the larger mission was much more enthusiastic about its program than the local one was. Uh, the local one uh, tried hard, but the, the staffing was somewhat inadequate. But the larger mission had a, um, a very enthusiastic staff. And we had the, the same routine, but then after we were done, their pastor would get up, and his closing remarks were often longer and certainly had more energy than what our pastors ever had. And he got much more amens than, than we ever did for what he had to say. But the point being, they had a, a pulpit um, a little bigger than this one. I remember very distinctly, they had this little bronze uh, plaque or sign and right up here beside the mic. And no one could see it unless you were the one standing here in this position. And the sign simply said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Um, now, I don't know the reason it was put there, but I do know that they had a service um, every night of the week, uh, 365 days a year, and most of the services were led by a volunteer church group that came in, like ours. We came in once or twice a year, but I think most of the other nights were also um, host, not hosted, but led by a similar type of group. And I'm sure, obviously, in a large city, there are many different denominations. Uh, many different beliefs, 
many different ways of teaching that undoubtedly came across that pulpit. And some I'm sure that we probably wouldn't agree with, some we would, and some probably that they didn't even agree with. And so I'm, they attach this little sign up here with a very simple but powerful reminder to the one speaking that, sir, we would see Jesus. That was what they wanted. The audience had one thing in common. Um, they had all reached the point where in life where their own efforts had let them down. That was why they were there. Whether from bad choices or whether from events that were beyond their control, they ended up at what we would probably call the bottom. They came to a mission and they wanted to get a free meal and a free bed for the night. And the beds being, we say bed, um, their beds were foam cushions about this thick that they would spread out every night and then the next morning they would take them back up and put them in a pile. So even, even the beds were um, basic, I guess would be a nice way of saying it. When it came to the evening service, their spiritual needs were also very basic. Uh, they needed Jesus, not one group or another, promoting its viewpoint or its interpretation on a particular controversial spiritual issue. Um, they were trying to avoid that. Uh, these were simple men, and they needed a simple and uncluttered, kind of a point-in-the-right-direction um, message. And they needed to hear the same message night after night across that pulpit. Obviously, there were some what we would call regulars there, but each night brought new faces, um, ones that were not there the night before. And the message you need to hear was, Jesus is the answer to your life's problems. Follow Him, model your life after His life, study how He responds to situations, and accept the forgiveness and power that he gives and face life from his perspective, not from your own. So that was the message that those men needed to hear, and I think it's why the little sign was placed there, simply as a reminder to stay focused on what was necessary, what was, what was the most important. That's also the message I think we need to hear um, today as well. Yes, it's true that we probably have more spiritual knowledge, um, a better background than many of those men did, Maybe our spiritual understanding is much more advanced than theirs. Maybe we think we have the hard questions figured out, but maybe sometimes we make the way too narrow. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19. This is still a few weeks away for Sunday school, so I'll try not to overlap here too bad. Matthew chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked him. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what, thing, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. So here we have two interesting accounts uh, back to back. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, my Bible makes an attempt to uh, number the, the sequence of events, and it has these two as happening back to back. So the first is Jesus welcoming the little children to him. Now, we've talked a lot about little children in Sunday school uh, the last couple weeks, and the comparisons to little children that we need to, to be, um, how Jesus looks at little children. And he explains here again, as he did a chapter earlier, that unless one believes as a child, he can't grasp the idea of the kingdom of heaven. This is not um, a huge concept. This is something a child can understand. And we think of how a child um, believes, how a child learns. Uh, a child believes completely without needing to understand completely. Uh, I know children are very some. Some are full of lots of questions. But most times, if you, if you tell a child something they're going to believe without having to understand all the workings and everything of why. Um, obviously, as they grow older, they do ask more questions, and that's healthy. Um, a child believes because he trusts the one that's telling him or her. Now, we have this trouble sometimes. Um, the girls ask, how far yet? And my, I always say half an hour um, because that's you know, it's kind of a standard joke here. And the girls ask, mom, how long? Because they don't trust that the half an hour is accurate. <laughs> um, so a child believes someone because they trust them. And that's very important here. Do we, do we trust the Bible um, without needing to understand completely? A four-year-old just as easily believes in Santa Claus as he does in Jesus if he is taught that Santa Claus is real. So very, very important what is taught, but also the point that a child believes without understanding Santa Claus or Jesus. He believes that, that it is real if he is taught that way. A child depends on his knowledge of truth to come from someone that's wiser than him. So if a child has a question, um, he tends to go to someone, a parent, a teacher, somebody who is wiser, and maybe not his, his peers, for depending on what the question is. And also important, a child is naturally eager to learn and does not take offense when his lack of knowledge is revealed. So he's not scared to ask and reveal that he doesn't know. It doesn't bother him. Um, he asks because he's eager to learn, and so therefore, obviously, his question reveals he doesn't know. And that does not offend him. Um, it just makes him more eager to learn. So I think that's the kind of belief that Jesus was looking for here, as a child believes, <clears throat> he's saying that is, that is what he wants to see in those that seek him. Now right after this, Jesus encounters kind of the other extreme. He encounters a young man, I'm going to guess possibly 20s or 30s, it says young, whatever that means, who had what he thought was a very complete knowledge of the law, and therefore he believed he had an excellent grasp on what was important in life. But Jesus' response to him was a little different. Jesus acknowledged that, yes, he did keep most of the law. That was good. But immediately after that, he touched on the one thing the young man was holding back. Jesus had a, a knowledge of the young man's life, um, and he touched on the thing that he was holding back, that, that of the young man's love for himself and the things that he held close. 
And as such, the young man was not willing to give up that, and as it said, went away sorrowful. Now the disciples witnessed both of these encounters. They witnessed the time with the children, they witnessed the time with the young man, and the children, the disciples viewed as a nuisance. Uh, they wanted him to go away. And the young man, I'm guessing, they were probably intimidated with. Um, a lot of the disciples were fishermen, um, and probably, you know, the similar age, and here came this young man with a lot of knowledge, and they most likely would have looked up to him as a good example. Yet Jesus was clearly showing them that a childlike openness and innocence was more desirable than someone who looks at himself as having attained a certain level of spirituality that set him above the rest, which we certainly see here in the young man, the example of this. So when, when we're presented with the challenge of showing Jesus, as, as the little sign says, we would see Jesus, um, showing Jesus to the world around us, what does, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, what does he look like to you and me? Before we're able to show Jesus to those around us, we need to have a clear picture of what he looks like to us. Uh, we need to have a, an idea of who Jesus is, what he does, what he says, what things are important to him, and what things are not important to him. Obviously, this is a much bigger subject than what I can cover this morning. Um, my goal here is not an exhaustive study of the person of Jesus, rather an attempt to motivate you, as the children did, to see Jesus for who he is, and not as the rich young man did, to see Jesus for who we would want him to be. Um, the last a uh, number of weeks, months here, we've been looking at some things that are important, that we view as very important, and some of that uh, came from another uh, meeting where there were core values discussed. Uh, what are core values? Um, we've been doing a lot of our Sunday school lesson in Matthew here. Uh, most of it is in the red letter, which would be direct quotes of Jesus, and I'm not like some where we only take what's in red as truth. Obviously, all the Bible is true. But we are looking at, at Jesus' life, um, and we are obviously trying to apply that to our lives, to see what we can learn from Him, um, and to see what we can take from what He says and what He does and apply it to our lives, and therefore to be more like Him. I want to focus today on the attributes of Him that we can also display to others around us. Obviously, we can't walk on water, or at least I can't. <clears throat> Uh, we can't calm literal storms at sea. So those are the things that we're going to reserve for um, him as an all-powerful God. But I do want to look at some of the, the aspects of him that we can show to those around us. And in doing so, um, people can see Jesus in our life. So we already know that Jesus had a special connection with children. Um, he always seemed to have time for them in his busy schedule. If you didn't notice, children take time. And they don't always, they're not always real selective. Uh, when they want that time. Um, it's, it sometimes comes at a very inopportune time for us, but Jesus stopped what he was doing and he took time for the children. <clears throat> and his presence seemed to draw them rather than frighten them away. We all know there's, there's some people that your children um, love to go to, an older person, and other people they just kind of shy away from. Uh, Jesus was very welcoming to children. And he recognized, I believe, in them a very unique opportunity of um, fertile, untouched soil, if you can call it that. Soil that's been uncluttered by the weeds of skepticism, disillusionment that so often comes when life disappoints with unfulfilled promises. 
Children are still very, generally very optimistic about life, and uh, they wake up and look forward to the next day in ways that not all of us do as much anymore. Um, and they display an openness and innocence that I think Jesus found refreshing, and we do as well if we interact with them. Jesus himself began his time here on earth as a child, and I know we kind of, we, we've heard that all our lives, take it for granted, but he allowed his greatness to be confined to the limitations of a human baby. You know, we have some new babies here, and we think about the, the limitations that they have. Um, I assume that Jesus had to learn to walk. Uh, I don't think he, he was born knowing that. Uh, learn how to talk. Learn how to care for himself. Uh, can we picture Jesus as, a, you know, as a, a helpless infant that did not have any of those things? Um, he had to learn those things from his human mother. And there remains some debate as to whether he was a perfect child as far as when it came to sinning, to growing up, um, or whether he required discipline as normal children do. Um, unlike other children, I do not believe he was born with a sinful nature. So I expect his two-year-old years looked a little different than maybe his brothers and sisters did, but he was still, he was still a, human, a human child. But along with the physical limitations that come with being born as a human, he also accepted the social limitations that came with being born into an earthly family. The events that surrounded his birth and his childhood were what we would call traumatic. Uh, he was born far away from home, in the stable, uh, you know, intruded on by shepherds, then later by wise men. He was then hunted by Herod's soldiers. They were forced to flee for his life in the middle of the night, and they went back and forth to Egypt. Uh, no small journey in those days. And when they came home, they came to a different home than what they had left in an even less honorable location. He faced a stigma, very questionable conception, being raised in a relatively poor setting, the oldest of quite a number of children, and he did not have what we would consider an easy childhood. Um, but the Luke 2 verse 52 says Jesus was subject to his earthly parents. He chose to be raised as their child. At some point in time, he lost his earthly father, sometime before adulthood, and his childhood followed him into his ministry. And if we have just a peek of that, if we turn to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, and they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? When then did this man get the, all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he was not well received by those who knew him, by, by his childhood uh, peers that grew up with them. Um, his background as it was, won him no credibility with them, being from a poor family. Um, they knew the rumors of, of his birth, and he, was, he faced rejection early on and from those closest to him outside of his own family. And did you ever think how Jesus could have chosen to, to skip 
the whole childhood birth thing and just walk into town one day as an adult with a message to tell. Um, he didn't have to go through all the, all the um, uh, whatever you want to call it, of, of childhood. Um, although I think he did to identify, so we can identify with some of that stuff. Um, we were not all raised in a perfect setting. We were not all raised with a perfect childhood. And Jesus experienced that as well. Jesus spent thousands of years laying the groundwork for his first coming. And he did use prophecy to confirm through his childhood and birth that he was who he was. There was actually quite a, from what I understand, quite a few people who walked into town claiming to be the Messiah in those days. And uh, most of them uh, met a not-so-good end um, at the hands of the Romans. And Jesus would, could have been just another one of those. But instead he used um, his birth and the prophecy uh, predicting that to confirm that he was who he was. And he used his rather, if we could say, unpleasant earthly beginning as a confirmation of and not a hindrance to his ministry. He didn't expect to win the approval of all. He expected rejection, and he dealt with it in every step of his earthly life. He began his public ministry in a rather strange way as well. In John chapter 2, he attended a wedding with his mother. And we know the story, so I won't read it here. But they ran out of wine, so Jesus made more wine from water. And I have to ask, why did he choose this as his first miracle? Um, I don't know the answer, but interesting that he did take time to attend the wedding with his new disciples. He had just chosen his disciples very shortly before, and it says that they were all invited to the wedding. So maybe they knew the couple, maybe it was a family friend, we don't know. Maybe he simply went out of respect. And either way, he did value family. He did take the time, um, took a valuable Saturday, and attended a wedding. Now, he could have sat idly by when they ran out of wine. Um, this was their emergency. It wasn't his. Uh, it wasn't his problem. And yet he began his ministry with a simple act of kindness, a small uh, gesture on his part that saved the day for the host of the wedding. So a gentle reminder to us not to overlook the small things in life because we have bigger and more important things to do. And Now, immediately after that time at the wedding, um, we see another side of Jesus. And again, this was discussed a little bit this morning in, in uh, Sunday school. Um, I'm going to read this account, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. And, he, and he, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changing changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those that sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So Jews from both far and near were expected to attend the Passover, and the ones who traveled in often had no way of bringing their sacrifices with them. And so this little business had sprung up in the temple of selling sacrifices to the ones from out of town. And they changed money um, from local currency to foreign to pay the temple tax. And what could have started as a, a, a service, kind of, to help the foreign Jewish worshipers had, had instead turned into a rather corrupt, overpriced opportunity 
for the locals to um, charge too much for what they were selling. Now this angered Jesus because God's house of worship had turned into just another place for financial gain, and he showed what I guess could be described as righteous anger in driving them out. So I'm not suggesting we should always follow his example here of um, literally you know, doing what he did, but are we angered when, when God's house, when God's time of worship is disrespected? When what should be offered to God in worship is instead used for personal gain? Here we see a side of Jesus where we asked this morning in Sunday school, did he, did he ever offend people? I'm sure he did offend some people here. Um, and I think we need to be very discerning as we look at this account and say, well, why did he do what he did? How did he do what he did? And how do we apply that to our lives today? But I do believe there is a time um, when there, there is a, a, a time for righteous anger when, when, God's, when God is being violated here, as he was here. And again, following this, if we move on to chapter 3, another aspect of Jesus, we see him meeting uh, one-on-one with Nicodemus. Now, they met at night. Jesus respected Nicodemus' privacy. And he provided a safe place for him to open his heart, to ask honest questions without fear of ridicule. Um, again, a, a, a totally different side of Jesus we see here again. He spoke to Nicodemus on Nicodemus' intellectual level, and he kind of connected the dots um, to Nicodemus' partial understanding of the gospel. He explained how this whole idea worked, and he taught him without demeaning him, and he challenged his beliefs without threatening them. And as a result of that, a seed was planted in Nicodemus's life that began to grow. And we see him appear a few more times throughout Jesus' life. Uh, he spoke out in defense of Jesus to his fellow Pharisees in John chapter 7. They were discussing him, and he, he spoke out um, in defense of Jesus and uh, kind of marked himself, I guess, at that point um, as, as siding with Jesus versus, versus them. And then later, after the crucifixion, he and Joseph of Arimathea uh, had the courage to ask Pilate for permission to bury Jesus' body. So we see that the, the little time of meeting here that Jesus had with Nicodemus um, was a very, maybe there wasn't much progress made that night, but there was, there was something sown in his life that later brought fruit. And I think it would be safe to say that that little seed... Um, produced fruit over time, and Nicodemus um, became a follower of Jesus. So Jesus' ministry continues. Uh, he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. He offers her living water as a solution for her life. And we notice he intentionally went through Samaria uh, to meet her. He visited places and people that the Jews avoided because they considered themselves better than Samaritans. So he went out of his way to meet what we would say would be the undesirable people. Uh, he gave her the same opportunity that he presented to all those who were searching, uh, the chance to know and believe in the Messiah. He gave the same opportunity to her as he would have to fellow Jews. And not just some future promise, but right here, right now, um, you can meet the Messiah here. Someone that can be seen, someone that can be touched and talked to, someone who cares for them personally. To, to the Samaritans, uh, they believed they had to go to Jerusalem to worship. Uh, the, the, the Messiah for them was, was a rather distant, um, almost unreachable idea. And Jesus said, no, uh, you have the same opportunity. He is here for you as well. 
Jesus healed many people, were given many accounts, um, blind, deaf, lame, other sicknesses that Jesus healed. He showed them that their physical condition was important as well as their spiritual condition. He had compassion on them. We see a lot of that. Uh, Jesus took the time to stoop down, to reach for a beggar. Um, he literally got his hands dirty, mixing mud for the blind man's eyes. Uh, he stooped to their level to meet them and to, to reach them in a physical way. He also fed thousands of people. And I, I know he had the advantage of just being able to speak food into existence. Um, that would be really nice, ladies, wouldn't it, if you could just speak and there'd be enough food for 500 people. But as he did with the wine, he showed that a simple meal can be a ministry in and of itself. Um, the simple thing of food, of eating, of eating together, Jesus used that as a ministry. So um, that can be a, a challenge for us, too. Something that's, that's as ordinary as, as food, Jesus showed us, can be an excellent ministry. He gave second chances. If we turn to John 8, John 8, verses uh, 2 through 11. Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When he, they had set her in the midst, he said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped low and wrote in the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued talking, when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who, who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted of their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, when he... When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are you, those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So did Jesus excuse the, the lady's actions here? No, he did not excuse them. He told her to go and sin no more. But he also taught a very valuable lesson, both to her and to those that were accusing her, to be careful how strongly you point your fingers at other people's sins, while we know Jesus does not tolerate or overlook sin, he also does not tolerate a double standard in behavior no matter who you are. Even if you are an important religious leader, he does not tolerate a double standard. We know the, we know the law of Moses, uh, if I'm correct in this, um, the stoning was to apply to both the man and the lady, and they had their double standard and brought only the lady here. And Jesus was pointing that out, that you are also not without sin. Jesus shows a sympathy for those who are grieving a loss. Uh, John chapter 11 is the account of Lazarus dying. I'm going to jump in here at verse 32 in John chapter 11. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? So even though we know that Jesus had intentionally planned to show up after Lazarus had died um, so that he could raise him from the dead, I believe he still truly felt the sorrow of Mary and Martha as they were grieving their brother. He wept because they were weeping. He felt their grief because they were his friends 
and he shared in their grief. He poured many hours of teaching into his disciples. They were simple, young, rough men who were very thick-headed, very ignorant at times. And uh, you and I might have given up on them ever understanding what was trying to be taught, uh, let alone them ever teaching it to others. But he taught them not just to be followers of him, but also to be leaders of others after he was gone. He had faith in them. He washed their feet. He showed them that a good leader must first be a servant, that the greatest of them must be the least. He prayed for them. He interceded to God on their behalf. He asked for God's blessing and protection on them and their ministry. He did not pray that they would always stay clear of harm's way, but for their safety as they followed their calling. Jesus resisted the temptation to take shortcuts to power and prestige that Satan offered. We think of his time in the desert when Satan offered him um, what appeared to be uh, a shortcut to becoming uh, king of the world, if you want to call it that. And he chose instead to follow God's plan as it had been laid out for him from the beginning, knowing it was the only way to redeem the price for sinful mankind and loving those who hated him enough to die for them too, and not just for his friends. And he avoided the the same temptation even at the last, um, when he could have called his heavenly protectors who were standing by, could have saved himself from the death that was facing him. Instead, in John 18, he says, His kingdom is not of this world, and therefore he will not respond as such. He did not resort to the world's way of resistance when faced with evil. But he responded uh, through love. He forgave the weakness of Peter when Peter denied him, building on Peter's weaknesses, I'm sorry, his strengths and not his weaknesses. And as Jesus commanded Peter three times to feed his sheep, meaning to lead the, the future church, well, which Peter did, and Peter, Jesus looked beyond who Peter currently was. We know a lot of Peter's um, impulsive nature, uh, his shortcomings, and Jesus looked beyond that and saw the potential for who Peter could be and he encouraged him towards that. He trusted Peter even after Peter had denied him um, and inspired Peter to a greatness that he could never have reached on his own. Jesus also forgave the doubt of Thomas. Um, Thomas has been called the doubting disciple. Uh, He required proof, and Jesus allowed that. He allowed Thomas to see for himself the scars that proved who Jesus was after he arose while gently chiding Thomas for his lack of faith, um, that he needed to to have proof there. Jesus said that's not necessary. You can believe without having proof. Then he left his disciples. He returned to heaven. He left them and us with the promise of the Holy Spirit, as well as a job to do. Be witnesses of me. Show me to others, as the little saying says, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we could fill in our own town names for that, Um, But Jesus is asking us, like he asked them, to to show himself to be be the the face of him to those that do not know him. And that is the the challenge we want to leave with today. So with those thoughts, let's stand for prayer, and then remain standing for the final song as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your Son to earth to live among us and to show us in a literal way how you would have us to live. 
Thank you that you paid, that he paid the price for our sins and rose again, giving us the power then to live as he commanded. Give us a vision of his life so that we can live in such a way that those around us can see Jesus in our everyday lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, Jen.